0: The power to leave the tomb, to overthrow enemies, and to come forth by day. Chapter seventy-six to eighty-nine enables a man to transform himself into the Light God, the primeval soul of God. The gods are an Osiris, a golden hawk, a divine hawk, a lotus, a Bennu bird, a heron, a swallow, a serpent, a crocodile, and into any being or thing he pleased. Chapter eighty nine enabled the soul of the deceased to rejoin its body at pleasure, and chapters ninety one and ninety two secured the egress of his soul and spirit from the tomb. Chapters ninety four to ninety seven made the deceased an associate of Thoth, and chapters ninety eight to ninety nine secured for him the use of the magical boat and the services of the celestial ferryman, who would ferry him across the river in the Tuat to the island of Fire, in which Osiris lived. Chapters 101 and 102 provided access for him to the boat of Ra. The
1: Island of Chapters
0: 108, 109, 112 and 116 enabled him to know the souls, in other words, gods of the East and West, and of the towns of Pe, Meke, Kemenu and Anu. Chapters 117 to 119 enabled him to find his way through Rastaf, a part of the kingdom of Zika, the God of Death. Chapter 152 enabled him to build a house and chapter 132 gave him power to return to the earth and see it. Chapter 153 provided for his escape from the fiend who went about to take souls in a net. Chapters 155 to 160, 166 and 167 formed the spells that were engraved on amulets. In other words, the tet, male, the tet, female, the vulture, the collar, the scepter, the pillow. Spectrum, etc., and gave to the deceased the power of Osiris and Isis and other gods, and restored to him his heart and lifted up his head.
1: This is um, (coughs) Thoth, the Nephilim god of literature, new discoveries into legends of gods, and uh, we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna pull up, man, this is really good stuff.
0: And it was written in three kinds of writing, which are called hieroglyphic, hieratic. <clears throat> hmm. I
1: just thought of a funny name for an album called Cottonmouth. That's, that's a good comedy album name.
0: Thoth. <laughs> the author of Egyptian literature, writing materials, etc. The literature of ancient Egypt is the product of a period of about 4000 years and it was written in three kinds of writing which are called hieroglyphic, hieratic, and demotic. In the first of these, the characters were pictures of objects. In the second, the forms of the characters were made as simple as possible so that they might be written quickly, And in the third, many of them lost their picture form altogether and became mere symbols. Egyptian writing was believed to have been invented by the god Tehuti, or Thoth. And as this god was thought to be a form of the mind and intellect and wisdom of the god who created the heavens and the earth, the picture characters, or hieroglyphs as they're called, were held to be holy or divine or sacred. Certain religious texts were thought to possess special virtue when written in hieroglyphics, and the chapters and sections of books that were considered to be composed by Thoth himself were believed to possess very great power, and to be Mm. of the utmost benefit to the dead when they were written up for them in hieroglyphs, Mm. and buried with them in their coffins. Thoth also invented the science of numbers, and as he fixed the courses of the sun, moon, and stars, and ordered the seasons, He was thought to be the first astronomer he was the lord of wisdom and the possessor of all knowledge both heavenly and earthly divine and human and he was the author of every attempt made by man to draw paint and carve as Hmm. the lord and maker of books and as the skilled scribe he was the clerk of the gods and kept the registers wherein the deeds of men were written down
1: So that means we're all born of a black
0: woman. The deep knowledge of Thoth enabled him to find out the truth at all times, and this ability caused the Egyptians to assign to him the position of chief judge of the dead. A very ancient legend states that Thoth acted in this capacity in the great trial that took place in heaven when Osiris was accused of certain crimes by his twin brother Set, the god of evil. Thoth examined the evidence and proved to the gods that the charges made by Set were untrue, and that Osiris had spoken the truth, and that Set was a liar. For this reason, every Egyptian prayed that Thoth might act for him as he did for Osiris, and that on the day of the Great Judgment Thoth might preside over the weighing of his heart in the balance. All the important religious works in all periods were believed to be composed either by himself or by holy scribes who were inspired by him. They were believed to be sources of the deepest wisdom, the like of which existed in no other books in the world, and it is probably to these books that Egypt owed her fame for learning and wisdom, which spread throughout all the civilized world. The books of Thoth, which late popular tradition in Egypt declared to be as many as 36,525 in number, were revered by both natives and foreigners in a way which it is difficult for us in these days to realize. The scribes who studied and copied these books were also specially honoured, for it was believed that the spirit of Thoth, the twice-great and thrice-great god, dwelt in them. The profession of the scribe was considered to be most honourable, and its rewards were great, for no rank and no dignity were too high for the educated scribe. Thoth appears in the papyri and on the monuments as an ibis-headed man, and his companion is usually a dog-headed ape called Aston. In the hall of the great judgment, he is seen holding in one hand a reed, with which he is writing on a pallet, the result of the weighing of the heart of the dead man in the balance. The gods accepted the report of Thoth without question, and rewarded the good soul, and punished the bad, according to his statement. From the beginning to the end of the history of Egypt, the position of Thoth as the righteous judge, and framer of the laws by which heaven and earth, and men and gods were governed, remained unchanged. The substances used by the Egyptians for writing upon were very numerous, but the commonest were stone of various kinds, wood, skin, and papyrus. The earliest writings were probably traced upon these substances with some fluid, colored black or red, which served as ink. When the Egyptians became acquainted with the use of the metals, they began to cut their writings in stone. The text of one of the oldest chapters of the Books of the Dead LXIV is said in the rubric to the chapter to have been found cut upon a block of alabaster of the south during the reign of Menkara, a king of the 4th dynasty, about 3,700 BC. As time went on and men wanted to write long texts or inscriptions, they made great use of wood as a writing material, partly on account of the labour and expense of cutting in stone. In the British Museum, many wooden coffins may be seen with their insides covered with religious texts, which were written with ink as on paper. Sheepskin or goat skin were used as a writing material, but its use was never general. Ancient Egyptian documents written on skin or, as we would say, on parchment, are very few. At a very early period, the Egyptians learned how to make a sort of paper, which is now universally known by the name of papyrus. When they made this discovery, cannot be said, but the hieroglyphic inscriptions of the early dynasties contain the picture of a roll of papyrus, and the antiquity of the use of papyrus must therefore be very great. Among the oldest dated examples of inscribed papyrus may be noted some accounts which were written in the reign of King Asa, 4th dynasty, 3400 BC, and which were found at Saqqara about 20 miles to the south of Cairo. Papyrus was made from papyrus plant, that grew and flourished in the swamps and marshes of lower Egypt, and in the shallow pools that were formed by the annual Nile flood. It no longer grows in Egypt, but it is found in the swamps of the Egyptian Sudan, where it grows sometimes to a height of 25 feet. The foots and the stem, which is often thicker than a man's arm, are used as fuel and the head, which is large and rounded, is, in some districts, boiled and eaten as a vegetable. The Egyptian variety of the papyrus plant was smaller than that found in the Sudan, and the Egyptians made their paper from it by cutting the inner part of the stem into thin strips, the width of which depended upon the thickness of the stem. The length of these varied, of course, with the length of the stem. To make a sheet of papyrus, several of these strips were laid side by side lengthwise, and several others were laid over them crosswise. Thus, each sheet of papyrus contained two layers, which were joined together by means of glue and water or gum. Pliny, a Roman writer, states, Bond's edition, volume 3, page 189, that Nile water, which, when in a muddy state, has the peculiar qualities of glue, was used in fastening the two layers of strips together, but traces of gum have actually been found on papyri. The sheets were next pressed and then dried in the sun, and when rubbed with a hard polisher in order to remove roughness, were ready for use. By adding sheet to sheet, rolls of papyrus of almost any length could be made. The longest roll in the British Museum is 133 feet long by 16.5 inches high, Harris Papyrus Number 1. And the second in length is a copy of the Book of the Dead, which is 123 feet long and 18.5 inches high. The latter contains 2,666 lines of writing, arranged in 172 columns. The rolls on which ordinary compositions were written were much shorter and not so high, for they are rarely more than 20 feet long and are only from 8 to 10 inches in height. The scribe mixed on his palettes the paints which he used, this palette usually consisted of a piece of alabaster, wood, ivory, or slate, from 8 to 16 inches in length and from 2 to 3.5 inches in width. All four corners were square. At one end of the palette, a number of oval or circular hollows were sunk to hold ink or paint. Down the middle was cut a groove, square at one end and sloping at the other, in which the writing reeds were placed. These were kept in position by a piece of wood glued across the middle of the palette or by a sliding cover, which also served to protect the wreaths from injury. On the sides of this group are often found inscriptions that give the name of the owner of the palette, and that contains prayers to the gods for funerary offerings, or invocations to Thoth, the inventor of the art of writing. The black ink used by scribes was made of lamp-black or of finely powdered charcoal, mixed with water, to which a very small quantity of gum was probably added. Red and yellow paint were made from mineral earths or ochres, blue paint was made from lapis lazuli powder, green paint from sulfate of copper, and white paint from lime white. Sometimes the ink was placed in small wide mouthed pots made of Egyptian porcelain or alabaster. The scribe rubbed down his colours on a stone slab with a small stone muller. The writing reed, which served as a pen, was from eight to ten inches long, and from one sixteenth to one eighth of an inch in diameter. The end used in writing was bruised and not cut. In late times a very much thicker reed was used, and then the end was cut like a quill or steel pen. Writing reeds of this kind were carried in boxes of wood and metal specially made for the purpose. Many specimens of all kinds of Egyptian writing materials are to be seen in the Egyptian rooms of the British Museum. As papyrus was expensive, the pupils in the schools attached to the great temples of Egypt wrote their exercises and copies of standard literary compositions on slices of white limestone of fine texture or upon boards in the shape of modern slates used in schools whitened with lime. The copies from which they worked were written by the teacher on limestone slabs of somewhat larger size. Copies of the texts that masons cut upon the walls of temples and other monuments were also written on slabs of this kind and when figures of kings or gods were to be sculpted on the walls their proportions were indicated by perpendicular and horizontal lines drawn to scale. Portions of broken earthenware pots were also used for practising writing upon. And, in the Ptolemaic and Roman periods, lists of goods and business letters, and the receipts given by the tax-gatherers were written upon potsherds. In still later times, when skin or parchment was as expensive as papyrus, the Copts, or Egyptian Christians, used slices of limestone and potsherds for draughts of portions of the scriptures and letters in much the same way as did their ancestors. A roll of papyrus, when not in use, was kept in shape by a piece or string of papyrus cord which was tied in a bow. Sometimes, especially in the case of legal documents, a clay seal bearing the owner's name was stamped on the cord. Valuable rolls were kept in wooden cases or book boxes, which were deposited in a chamber or house set apart for the purpose, which was commonly called the house of books, in other words, the library. Having now described the principal writing materials used by the ancient Egyptians, we may pass on to consider briefly the various classes of Egyptian literature that have come down to us. Chapter 2. The Pyramid Texts. Pyramid texts is the name now commonly given to the long hieroglyphic inscriptions that are cut upon the walls of the chambers and corridors of five pyramids at Saqqara. The oldest of them was built for Unas, a king of the 5th dynasty, and the four others were built for Tita, Pepe I, Marinra, and Pepe II, kings of the 6th dynasty. According to the calculation of Dr. Broksh, they were all built between 3,300 and 3,150 BC, but more recent theories assign them to a period about 700 years later. These texts represent the oldest religious literature known to us, for they contain beliefs, dogmas, and ideas that must be thousands of years older than the period of the 6th dynasty, when the bulk of them was drafted for the use of the masons who cut them inside the pyramids. It is probable that certain sections of them were composed by the priests for the benefit of the dead in very primitive times in Egypt, when the art of writing was unknown, and that they were repeated each time a king died. They were first learned by heart by the funerary priests, and then handed on from mouth to mouth, generation after generation, and at length after the Egyptians had learned to write, and there was danger of their being forgotten, they were committed to writing. And just as these certain sections were absorbed into the great body of pyramid texts of the 6th dynasty, so portions of the texts of the 6th dynasty were incorporated into the great Teban Book of the Dead, and they appear in papyri that were written more than 2,000 years later. The pyramid texts supply us with much information concerning the religious beliefs of the primitive Egyptians. And also, with many isolated facts of history that are to be found nowhere else but of the meaning of a very large number of passages, we must always remain ignorant, because they describe the states of civilization and conditions of life and climate of which no modern person can form any true conception. Besides this, the meanings of many words are unknown. The spelling is strange and often inexplicable, the construction of the sentence is frequently unlike anything known in later texts, and the ideas that they express are wholly foreign to the minds of students of today, who are in every way aliens to the primitive Egyptian-African whose beliefs these words represent. The pyramids at Saqqara, in which the pyramid texts are found, were discovered by the Frenchman Mariette in 1880. Paper casts of the inscriptions which are deeply cut in the walls and painted green, were made for Professor Maspero, the director of the Service of Antiquities in Egypt, and from these he printed an edition in hieroglyphic type of all five texts, and added a French translation of the greater part of them. Professor Maspero correctly recognized the true character of these old-world documents, and his translation displayed an unrivaled insight into the true meaning of many sections of them. The discovery and study of other texts and the labours of recent workers have cleared up passages that offered difficulties to him, but his work will remain for a very long time the base of all investigations. The pyramid texts and the older texts quoted or embodied in them were written, like every religious funerary work in Egypt, for the benefit of the king, that is to say, to effect his glorious resurrection and to secure for him happiness in the other world and life everlasting. They were intended to make him become a king in the other world, as he had been a king upon earth. In other words, he was to reign over the gods, and to have control of all the powers of heaven, and to have the power to command the spirits and souls of the righteous, as his ancestors, the kings of Egypt, had ruled their bodies when they lived on earth. The Egyptians found that their king, who was an incarnation of the great god, died like other men, And they feared that even if they succeeded in effecting his resurrection by means of the pyramid texts he might die a second time in the other world they spared no effort and left no means untried to make him not only a living soul in the tuat or other world but to keep him alive there the object of every prayer every spell every hymn and every incantation contained in these texts was to preserve the king's life this might be done in many ways in the first place it was necessary to provide a daily supply of offerings, which were offered up in the funerary temple that was attached to every pyramid. The carefully selected and duly appointed priest offered these one by one, and as he presented each to the spirit of the king, he uttered a formula that was believed to convert the material food into a substance possessing a spiritual character and fit to form the food of the ka, or double or vital power, of the dead king. The offerings assisted in renewing his life, and any failure to perform this service was counted a sin against the dead king's spirit. It was also necessary to perform another set of ceremonies, the object of which was to open the mouth of the dead king. In other words, to restore the power to breathe, think, speak, taste, smell, and walk the performance of these ceremonies, it was all-important to present articles of food, wearing apparel, scents, and unguents, and, in short, every object that the king was likely to require in the other world. The spirits of all these objects passed into the other world, ready for use by the spirits of the king. It follows, as a matter of course, that the king in the other world needed a retinue, and a bodyguard, and a host of servants, just as he needed slaves upon earth. In primitive times, a large number of slaves, both male and female, were slain when a king died, and their bodies were buried in his tomb, whilst their spirit passed into the other world to serve the spirit of the king, just as their bodies had served his body upon earth. As the king had enemies in this world, so it was, he thought, he would have enemies in the other world, and men feared that he would be attacked or molested by evilly disposed gods and spirits, and by deadly animals and serpents, and other noxious reptiles. To ward off the attacks of these from his tomb, and his mummified body, and his spirit, the priest composed spells of various kinds, and the utterance of such, in a proper manner, was believed to render him immune from the attacks of foes of all kinds. Very often such spells took the form of prayers. Many of the spells were exceedingly ancient. Even in the pyramid period, they were, in fact, so old that they were unintelligible to the scribes of the day. They date from the time when the Egyptians believed more in magic than religion. It is possible that when they were composed, religion, in our sense of the word, was still undeveloped among the Egyptians. When the pyramid texts were written, men believed that the welfare of souls and spirits in the other world could be secured by the prayers of the living. Hence, we find in them numerous prayers for the dead, and hymns addressed to the gods on their behalf. And extracts from many kinds of ancient religious books. When these were recited and offerings made both to the gods and to the dead, it was confidently believed that the souls of the dead received special consideration and help from the gods and from all the good spirits who formed their train. These prayers are very important from many points of view, but specially so from the fact that they prove that the Egyptians who lived under the sixth dynasty attached more importance to them than to magical spells and incantations. In other words, the Egyptians had begun to reject their belief in the efficacy of magic and to develop a belief of a more spiritual character. There were many reasons for this development, but the most important was the extraordinary growth of the influence of the religion of Osiris, which had, before the close of the period of the 6th dynasty, spread all over Egypt. This religion promised to all who followed it, high or low, rich or poor, a life in the world beyond the grave after a resurrection that was made certain to them through the sufferings, death, and resurrection of Osiris, who is the incarnation of the great primeval God who created the heavens and the earth. A few extracts illustrating the general contents of the pyramid texts may now be given. Mention has already been made of the opening of the mouth of the dead king. Under the earliest dynasties, this ceremony was performed on a statue of the king, Water was sprinkled before it, and incense was burnt, and the statue was anointed with seven kinds of unguents, and its eyes smeared with eye-paint. After the statue had been washed and dressed, a meal of sepulchral offerings was set before it. The essential ceremony consisted in applying to the lips of the statue a curiously shaped instrument called the peshkev with which the bandages that covered the mouth of the dead king in his tomb were supposed to be cut, and the mouth set free to open. In later times, the liturgy of opening the mouth was greatly enlarged, and was called the Book of Opening the Mouth. The ceremonies were performed by the Kirheb priest, the son of the deceased, and the priests and ministrants called Samaref, Sem, Smer, Amas, Amkent, and the assistants called Mesentu. First of all, incense was burnt, and the priest said, Thou art pure, four times. Water was then sprinkled over the statue, and the priest said, Thou art pure, thou art pure. Thy purifications are the purifications of Horus, and the purifications of Horus are thy purifications. This formula was repeated three times, once with the name of Set, once with the name of Thoth, and once with the name of Sepp. The priest then said, thou hast received thy head and thy bones have been brought unto thee before Keb. during the performance of the next five ceremonies in which incense of various kinds was offered the priest said thou art pure four times that which is in the two eyes of horus hath been presented unto thee with the two vases of thoth and they purify thee so that there may not exist in thee the power of destruction that belongeth unto thee thou art pure Thou art pure, pure as the semen incense that openeth thy mouth. Taste the taste thereof in the divine dwelling. Semen incense is the emission of Horus. It establisheth the hearts of Horus set. It purifieth the god who are in the following of Horus. Thou art sensed with Natron. Thou art established among the gods thy brethren. Thy mouth is like that of a sucking calf on the day of its birth. Thou art sensed, thou art sensed, thou art Pierre. thou art Pierre. Thou art established among thy brethren the gods. Thy head is sensed, thy mouth is sensed, thy bones are purified. Decay, that is inherent in thee, shall not touch thee. I have given thee the eye of Horus, and thy face is filled therewith. Thou art shrouded in incense. Say twice. The next ceremony, the ninth represented the rebirth of the king, who was personified by a priest. The, the priest, meantime. wrapped in the skin of a bull, lay on a small bed and fainted death. When the chief priest had said, O oh, my father, four times, the priest representing the king came forth from the bull's skin and sat up. <clears throat> this act symbolized the resurrection of the king in the form of a spirit body, Sahu. The chief priest then asserted that the king was alive and that he should never be removed and that he was similar in every way to Horus. The priest personifying the king, then put on a special garment, and taking a staff or scepter in his hand, said, I love my father and his transformation. I have made my father. I have made a statue of him, a large statue. Horus loveth those who love him. He then pressed the lips of the statue and said, I have come to embrace thee. I am thy son. I am Horus i have pressed for thee thy mouth i am thy beloved son the words then said by the chief priest i have delivered this mine eye from his mouth i have cut off his leg mean that the king was delivered from the jaws of death and that a grievous wound had been inflicted on the god of death in other words set Whilst these ceremonies were being performed, the animals brought to be sacrificed were slain.
1: Chief of these were two bulls,
0: gazelle, geese, and their slaughter typified the conquest and death of the enemies of the dead king. The heart and a foreleg of each bull were presented to the statue of the king, and the priest said, Hail, Osiris, I have come to embrace thee. I am Horus. I have pressed for thee thy mouth. I am thy beloved son. I have opened thy mouth. Thy mouth hath been made firm. I have made thy mouth and thy teeth to be in their proper places. Hail, Osiris! I have opened thy mouth with the eye of Horus. Then, taking two instruments made of metal, the priest went through the motion of cutting open the mouth and eyes of the statue, and said, I have opened thy mouth. I have opened thy two eyes. I have opened thy mouth with the instrument of Anpu. I have opened thy mouth with the Meshka instrument, Wherewith the mouth of the gods were opened. Horus openeth the mouth and eyes of the Osiris. Horus openeth the mouth of the Osiris even as he opened the mouth of his father. As he opened the mouth of the god Osiris shall he open the mouth of my father with the iron that cometh forth from set. With the meshka instrument of iron wherewith he opened the mouth of the gods shall the mouth of the Osiris be opened. And the Osiris shall walk, and shall talk, and his body shall be with the great company of the gods who dwell in the great house of the aged one, in other words, the sun god, who dwelleth in Anu, and he shall take possession of the earth crown, therein before Horus, the lord of mankind, hail Osiris, Horus hath opened thy mouth, and thy eyes, with the instruments sever and un- wherewith the mouths of the gods of the south were opened. All the gods bring words of power. They recite them for thee. They make thee to live by them. Thou becomest the possessor of twofold strength. Thou makest the passers that give thee the fluid of life, and their life fluid is about thee. Thou art protected, and thou shalt not die. Thou shalt change thy form, at pleasure, among the doubles of the gods. Thou shalt raise up as a king of the south, thou shalt rise up as a king of the north. Thou art endowed with strength, like all the gods and their doubles. Shu hath equipped thee, he hath exalted thee to the height of heaven. He hath made thee to be a wonder, he hath endowed thee with strength. The ceremonies that followed concerned the dressing of the statue of the king and his food. Various kinds of bandlets and a collar were presented, and the gift of each endowed the king in the other world with special qualities. The words recited by the priest as he offered these and other gifts were highly symbolic, and were believed to possess great power, for they brought the double of the king back to this earth to live in the statue, and each time they were repeated, they renewed the life of the king in the other world. The Liturgy of funerary Offerings was another all-important work the oldest form of it which is found in the pyramid texts proves that even under the earliest dynasties the belief in the efficacy of sacrifices and offerings was an essential of the egyptian religion the opening ceremonies had for their object the purification of the deceased by means of sprinkling with water in which salt natron and other cleansing substances had been dissolved and burning of incense Then followed the presentation of about 150 offerings of food of all kinds, fruit, flowers, vegetables, various kinds of wine, seven kinds of precious ointments, wearing apparel of the kind suitable for a king, etc. As each object was presented to the spirit of the king, which was present in his statue in the Tuat chamber of the tomb, the priest recited a form of words, which had the effect of transmuting the substance of the object into something which, when used or absorbed by the king's spirit, renewed the king's life and maintained his existence in the other world, every object was called the Eye of Horus, in allusion to its life-giving qualities. The following extracts illustrate the liturgy of funerary offerings. Thirty-two. This libation is for thee, Osiris. This libation is for thee, Unas. Here, offer cold water of the north. It cometh forth before thy son, cometh forth before Horus. I have come, I have brought unto thee the eye of Horus, that thy heart may be refreshed thereby. I have brought it, and have set it under thy sandals, and I present unto thee that which flowed forth from thee. There shall be no stoppage to thy heart whilst it is with thee, and the offerings that appear at the command shall appear at thy word of command. Recite four times. 37. Thou hast taken possession of the two eyes of Horus, the white and the black, and when they are in thy face, they illumine it. Here, offer two jugs of wine, one white, one black. 38. Day hath made an offering unto thee in the sky. The south and the north have given offerings unto thee. Night hath made an offering unto thee. The south and the north have made an offering unto thee. An offering is brought unto thee. Look upon it, an offering. Hear it. There is an offering before thee. There is an offering behind thee. There is an offering with thee. Here, offer a cake for the journey. 41. Osiris, Unas, the white teeth of Horus are presented unto thee, so that they may fill thy mouth. Here, offer five branches of onions. 47. O Ra, the worship that is paid to thee, the worship of every kind, shall be paid also to Unas. Everything that is offered to thy body shall be offered to the double of Unas also, and everything that is offered to his body shall be thine. Here, yeah. offer the table of holy offerings. 61. O ye oils, ye oils which are on the forehead of Horus, set ye yourselves on the forehead of Unas, and make him to smell sweet through you. Here offer oil of cedar of the finest quality. 62 Make ye him to be a spirit soul through possession of you, and grant ye him to have the mastery over his body. Let his eyes be opened, and let all the spirit souls see him, and let them hear his name. Behold, O Cyrus Unas, the eye of Horus hath been brought unto thee, for it hath been seized for thee that it may be before thee. Here of the finest Tehanu oil. As specimens of the hymns in the pyramid texts may be quoted the following. The first is a hymn to Nut, the sky goddess, and the second is a hymn to Ra, the sun god. <laughs> o Nut, thou hast extended thyself over thy son the Osiris Pepi, Thou hast snatched him out of the hand of Set. Join him to thyself, Nut. Thou comest. Snatch thy son, behold thou comest. Form this great one like unto thyself. O Not, cast thyself upon thy son and the Osiris Pepi. Not, cast thyself upon thy son in the Osiris Pepi. Form thou him, O great fashioner. this great one is among thy children. Form thou him, O great Fashioner, this great one is among thy children. Keb was to Not Thou didst become a spirit. Thou wast a mighty goddess in the womb of thy mother, Tefnut, when thou wast not born. Form thou Pepe with life and well-being, he shall not die. Strong was thy heart. Thou didst leap in the womb of thy mother, in thy name of Nut. O perfect daughter, mighty one in thy mother, who art crowned like a king of the north, make this Pepe a spirit soul in thee. Let him not die, O oh, great lady who didst come into being in the sky, who art mighty, who dost make happy and dost fill every place or being with thy beauty. The whole earth is under thee; thou hast taken possession of it; thou hast encompassed the earth. Everything is in thy two hands. Grant thou that this baby may be in thee like an imperishable star. Thou hast associated with Keb in thy name of Pet. Thou hast united the earth in every place. O Mistress over the earth, thou art above thy father's shoe, thou hast the mastery over him. He hath loved thee so much that he setteth himself under thee in everything. Thou hast taken possession of every god for thyself with his boat. Thou hast made them shine like lamps. Assuredly, they shall not cease from thee like the stars. Let not this pepi depart from thee in thy name of hurt. The hymn to the sun god is as follows. Hail to thee, Tem. Hail to thee, Kepra, who created himself. Thou art the high, in this thy name of height. Thou camest into being in this thy name of Kepra. Hail to thee, Eye of Horus, which he furnisheth with his hands completely. He permitteth. Not thee to be obedient to those of the west, he permitteth not thee to be obedient to those of the east, he permitteth not thee to be obedient to those of the south, he permitteth not thee to be obedient to those of the north, he permitteth not thee to be obedient to those who are in the earth. For thou art obedient to Horus. He it is who hath furnished thee, he it is who hath builded thee. He it is who hath made thee to be dwelt in. Thou doest for him whatsoever he saith unto thee in every place whither he goeth. Thou liftest up to him the waterfowl that are in thee. Thou liftest up to him the waterfowl that are about to be in thee. Thou liftest up to him every tree that is in thee. Thou liftest up to him every tree that is about to be in thee. Thou liftest up to him the cakes and ale that are in thee. Thou liftest up to him the cakes and ale that are about to be in thee. Thou liftest up to him the gifts that are in thee. Thou liftest up to him the gifts that are about to be in thee. Thou liftest up to him everything that is in thee. Thou liftest up to him everything that is about to be in thee. Thou takest them to him in every place wherein it pleaseth him to be. The doors upon thee stand fast shut like the God and muteth. They open not to those who are in the west. They open not to those who are in the east. They open not to those who are in the north. They open not to those who are in the south. They open not to those who are in the middle of the earth. But they open to Horus. He it was who made them. He it was who made them stand firm. He it was who delivered them from every evil attack which the gods set made upon them. He it was who made thee to be a settled country, in this thy name of Kirkit. He it was who passed bowing after thee in thy name of Nut. He it was who delivered thee from every evil attack which set made upon thee. The following passages describe the power of the king in heaven and his felicity there. The sky hath drawn the life of the star septet, so this the dog star. Behold Unas, a living being, the son of Septet. The eighteen gods have purified him in Meska, the great bear. He is an imperishable star. The house of Unas perisheth not in the sky. The throne of Unas perisheth not on the earth. Men make supplication there. The gods fly thither. Septet hath made Unas fly to heaven, to be with his brethren, the gods. Nut, the great lady, hath unfolded her arms to Unas. She hath made them into two divine souls at the head of the souls of Anu, under the head of Ra. She made them two weeping women when thou wast on thy bier. The throne of Unas is by thee, Ra. He yieldeth it not up to anyone else. Unas cometh forth into heaven by thee, Ra. The face of Unas is like the faces of the hawks. The wings of Unas are like those of geese. The nails of Unas are like the claws of the god Tuf. There is no evil word concerning Unas on earth, among men. There is no hostile speech about him with the gods. Unas hath destroyed his word. He hath ascended to heaven. Upuatu hath made Unas fly up to heaven, among his brethren, the gods. Unas hath drawn together his arms like the smen goose. He striketh his wings like a falcon, flying, flying. O men, Unas flieth up into heaven. O ye gods of the west, O ye gods of the east, O ye gods of the south, O ye gods of the north, ye four groups who embrace the holy lands, devote ye yourselves to Osiris when he appeareth in heaven. He shall sail into the sky with his son Horus by his fingers. He shall announce him, He shall make him rise up like the great god in the sky. They shall cry out concerning Unas, Behold Horus, the son of Osiris. Behold Unas, the firstborn son of Hathor. Behold the seed of Keb. Osiris hath commanded that Unas shall rise as a second Horus, and these four spirit souls in Anu have written an edict to the two great gods in the sky. Ra set up the ladder. In front of Osiris, Horus set up the ladder in front of his father, Osiris, when he went to his spirit, one on this side, and one on the other side. Unas is between them. Behold, he is the god of the pure seats, coming forth from the bath. Unas standeth up. Lo, Horus! Unas sitteth down. Lo, set. Ra graspeth his hand, spirit to heaven, body to earth. The power of the king in heaven was almost as absolute as it was upon earth, and in a very remarkable passage in the text of Unas, which is repeated in the text of Teta, we have a graphic description of the king as a mighty hunter, who chases the gods and lassoes them, and then kills and eats them in order that he may absorb their strength and wisdom, and all their divine attributes, and their power of living eternally. The passage reads, The sky is lower, the star gods tremble, The archers quake, the bones of the Akeru gods tremble, and those who are with them are struck dumb when they see Unas rising up as a soul in the form of the god who liveth upon his fathers and who turneth his mothers into his food. Unas is the lord of wisdom, and his mother knoweth not his name. The adoration of Unas is in heaven. He hath become mighty in the horizon like Temu, the father that gave him birth. And after Temu had given him birth, Unas became stronger than his father. The doubles, in other words, vital strength of Unas, are behind him. The soles of his feet are beneath his feet. His gods are over him. His serpents are seated upon his brow. The serpent guides of Unas are in front of him, and the spirit of the flame looketh upon his soul. The bowers of Unas protect him. Unas is a bull in heaven. He directeth his steps where he willeth he liveth upon the form which each god taketh upon himself and he eateth the flesh of those who come to fill their bellies with the magical charms in the lake of fire unas is equipped with power against the spirit souls thereof and he riseth in the form of the mighty one the lord of those who dwell in power unas hath taken his seat with his back turned towards keb the earth god unas hath weighed his words with a hidden god who hath no name on the day of hacking in pieces the firstborn, Unas is the lord of offerings, the untire of the knot, and he himself maketh abundant the offerings of meat and drink. Unas devoureth men and liveth upon the gods. He is the lord of envoys, whom he sendeth forth on his missions. He who cutteth off hairy scalps, who dwelleth in the fields, tieth the goats with ropes. Chesatep shepherdeth them for Unas and driveth them unto him and the cord-master hath bound them for slaughter. Kensu, the slayer of the wicked, cutteth their throats, and draweth out their intestines. For it is he whom Unas sendeth to slaughter them, and Shesmu cutteth them in pieces, and boileth their members in his blazing cauldrons of the night. Unas eateth their magical powers, and he swalloweth their spirit-souls. The great ones among them serve for his meal at daybreak, the lesser serve for his meal at even tide, and the least among them serve for his meal in the night. The old gods and old goddesses become fuel for his furnace. The mighty ones in heaven light the fire under the cauldrons, wherein are heaped up the thighs of the firstborn. And he who maketh those who live in heaven to go about for Unas lighteth the fire under the cauldrons with the thighs of their women. He goeth about the two heavens, in their entirety, and he goeth round about the two banks of the celestial Nile. Unas is the great power, the power of powers, and Unas is the chief of the gods in visible forms. Whatsoever he findeth upon his path, he eateth forthwith, and the magical might of Unas is before that of all the spirit bodies who dwell in the horizon. Unas is the firstborn of the firstborn gods. Unas is surrounded by thousands and oblations are made unto him by hundreds. He is made manifest as the great power by Sar, Orion, the father of the gods. Unas repeateth his rising in heaven, and he is crowned lord of the horizon. He hath reckoned upon the bandlets and the arm rings of his captives. He hath taken possession of the hearts of the gods. Unas hath eaten the red crown, and he hath swallowed the white crown. The food of Unas is the intestines and his meat, his heart, and their words of power. Behold, Unas eateth of that which the red crown sendeth forth. He increaseth, and the words of power of the gods are in his belly. His attributes are not removed from him. Unas hath eaten the whole of the knowledge of every god, and the period of his life is eternity, and the duration of his existence is everlastingness. He is in the form of one who doeth what he wisheth, and who doth not do what he hateth, and he abideth on the horizon for ever and ever and ever. The soul of the gods is in Unas, their spirit souls are with Unas, and the offerings made unto him are more than those that are made unto the gods. The fire of Unas is in their bones, for their soul is in Unas, and their shades are with those who belong unto them. Unas hath been with the two hidden Ka gods. The seat of the heart of Unas is among those who live upon this earth forever and ever and ever. The following extract is from one of the later pyramid texts. Pepi was brought forth by the god Nu, when there was no heaven, when there was no earth, when nothing had been established, when there was no fighting, and when the fear of the eye of Horus did not exist. This Pepi is one of the great offspring who were brought forth in Anu. Heliopolis, who have never been conquered by a king or ruled by chiefs, who are irresistible, whose words cannot be gainsaid. Therefore this Pepe is irresistible. He can neither be conquered by a king nor ruled by chiefs. The enemies of Pepe cannot triumph. Pepe lacketh nothing. His nails do not grow long for want of prey. No debt is reckoned against Pepe. If Pepe falleth into the water, Osiris will lift him out and the two companies of the gods will bear him up on their shoulders, and Ra, wheresoever he may be, will give him his hand. If Pippi falleth on the earth, the earth god Keb will lift him up, and the two companies of the gods will bear him upon their shoulders, and Ra, wheresoever he may be, he will give him his hand. Pippi appeareth in heaven among the imperishable stars, his sister, the star Sothis, the dog star, his guide, the morning star Venus, Lead him by the hand to the field of offerings. He taketh his seat on the crystal throne, with hath faces of fierce lions, and feet in the form of the hoofs of the bull smar. He standeth up in his place between the two great gods, and his scepter and staff are in his hands. He lifteth up his hand to the henlimit spirits, and the gods come to him with bowings. The two great gods look on in their places, and they find Pepe acting as judge of the gods. The word of every spirit soul is in him, and they make offerings to him among the two companies of the gods. Chapter 3 Stories of Magicians Who Lived Under the Ancient Empire The short stories of the wonderful deeds of ancient Egyptian magicians, here given, are found in the Westcar Papyrus, which is preserved in the Royal Museum in Berlin, where it is numbered P3033. This papyrus was the property of Miss Westcar of Wichurch, who gave it to the eminent German Egyptologist Richard Lepsitz in 1839. It was written probably at some period between the 12th and 18th Dynasties. The texts were first edited and translated by Professor Ehrman. The first story describes an event which happened in the reign of Nebka, a king of the 3rd Dynasty. It was told by Prince Kafra to King Khufu, Chops. The magician was called Ubana, and he was the chief Kerheb in the temple of Tar of Memphis, and a very learned man. He was a married man, but his wife loved a young man who worked in the fields, and she sent him by the hands of one of her maids a box containing a supply of very fine clothes. Soon after receiving this gift, the young man proposed to the magician's wife that they should meet and talk in a certain booth or lodge in her garden, and she instructed the steward to have the lodge made ready for her to receive her friend in it. When this was done, she went to the lodge, and she sat there with the young man, and drank beer with him until the evening, when he went his way. The steward, knowing what had happened, made up his mind to report the matter to his master, and as soon as the morning had come, he went to Ubana and informed him that his wife had spent the previous day drinking beer with such and such a young man. Ubana then told the steward, to fetch him his casket made of ebony and silver gold, which contained materials and instruments used in working magic. And when it was brought him, he took out some wax, and fashioned a figure of a crocodile seven spans long. He then recited certain magical words over the crocodile, and said to it, When the young man comes to bathe in my lake, thou shalt seize him. Then giving the wax crocodile to the steward, Ubana said to him, When the young man goes down to the lake to bathe, According to his daily habit, thou shalt throw the crocodile into the water after him. Having taken the crocodile from his master, the steward departed. Then the wife of Ubana told the steward to set the little lodge in the garden in order, because she was going to spend some time there. When the steward had furnished the lodge, she went there, and the young peasant paid her a visit. After leaving the lodge, he went and bathed in the lake, and the steward followed him and threw the wax crocodile into the water. It immediately turned into a large crocodile, seven cubits, about eleven feet long, and seized the young man and swallowed him up. When this took place, the magician Ubana was with the king, and he remained in attendance upon him for seven days, during which time the young man was in the lake with no air to breathe. When the seven days were ended, King Nebka proposed to take a walk with the magician. Whilst they were going along, Ubana asked the king if he would care to see a wonderful thing that had happened to a young peasant, and the king said he would, and forthwith walked to the place to which the magician led him. When they arrived at the lake, Ubana uttered a spell over the crocodile, and commanded it to come up out of the water, bringing the young man with him. And the crocodile did so. When the king saw the beast, he exclaimed at its hideousness, and seemed to be afraid of it, but the magician stooped down fearlessly and took the crocodile up in his hands, and lo, the living crocodile disappeared, and only a crocodile of wax remained in its place. Then Ubana told King Nebger the story of how the young man had spent days in the lodge in the garden talking and drinking beer with his wife, and his Majesty said to the wax crocodile Get thee gone, and take what is thine with thee. And the wax crocodile leaped out of the magician's hand into the lake, and once more became a large living crocodile and it swam away with the young man, and no one ever knew what became of it afterwards. Then the king made his servants seize Ubana's wife, and they carried her off to the ground on the north side of the royal palace. And there they burned her, and they scattered her ashes in the river. When King Khufu had heard the story, he ordered many offerings to be made in the tomb of his predecessor Nebka, and gifts to be presented to the magician Ubana. The prince Bahufra stood up and offered to relate to King Kufu Chumps a story of a magician called Chachamank, who flourished in the reign of Seneferu, the king's father. The offer having been accepted, Bofra proceeded to relate the following. On one occasion it happened that Seneferu was in a perplexed and gloomy state of mind, and he wandered distractedly about the rooms and courts of his palace, seeking to find something wherewith to amuse himself, but he failed to do so. Then he bethought himself of the court magician Chachamak, and he ordered his servants to summon him to his presence. When the great Kaheb and scribe arrived, he addressed him as my brother, and told them that he had been wandering about in his palace, seeking for amusement, and had failed to find it. The magician promptly suggested to the king that he should have a boat got ready, decorated with pretty things that would give pleasure, and should go for a row on the lake. The motions of the rowers as they rowed the boat about would interest him and the sight of the depths of the waters and the pretty fields and gardens round about the lake would give him great pleasure let me said the magician arrange the matter give me twenty ebony paddles inlaid with gold and silver and twenty pretty maidens with flowing hair and twenty network garments wherein to dress them the king gave orders for all these things to be provided And when the boat was ready, and the maidens who were to row had taken their places, he entered the boat, and sat in his little pavilion, and was rowed about on the lake. The magician's views proved to be correct, for the king enjoyed himself, and was greatly amused in watching the maidens row. Presently, the handle of the paddle of one of the maidens caught in her long hair, and in trying to free it, a malachite ornament which she was wearing in her hair fell into the water and disappeared the maiden was much troubled over her loss, and stopped rowing, and as her stopping threw out of order the strokes of the maidens who were sitting on the same seat as she was, they also stopped rowing. Thereupon the king asked why the rowing had ceased, and one of the maidens told them what had happened, and when he promised that the ornament should be recovered, the maiden said words which seemed to mean that she had no doubt that she should recover it. On this, Seneferu caused Chachamank to be summoned into his presence, and when he came, the king told him all that had happened. Then the magician began to recite certain spells, the effect of which was to cause the water of the lake first to divide into two parts, and then the water on one side to rise up and place itself on the water on the other side. The boat presumably sank down gently on the ground of the lake, for the malachite ornament was seen lying there, and the magician fetched it and returned it to its owner. The depth of the water in the middle of the lake where the ornament dropped was 12 cubits, between 18 and 19 feet. And when the water from one side was piled up on that on the other, the total depth of the two sections taken together was, we were told, 24 cubits. As soon as the ornament was restored to the maiden, the magician recited further spells, and the water lowered itself, and spread over the ground of the lake, and so regained its normal level. His Majesty King Seneferu assembled his nobles, and having discussed the matter with them, made a handsome gift to his clever magician. When King Kufu had heard the story, he ordered a large supply of funerary offerings to be sent to the tomb of Seneferu, and bread, beer, flesh, and incense to the tomb of Chachamank. When Biofra had finished the story given above, Prince,